Good afternoon. I'm John Walters, uh, Chief Operating Officer of Hudson Institute. On behalf of our President uh, Ken Weinstein and uh, my colleagues, I'd like to welcome you to the Betsy and Wally Stern Conference Center. Um, Hudson has had a long history of working on human rights, and uh, one of the people most responsible for that work is Nina Shea, who is uh, chairing today's uh, session. I want to thank her for her work. I want to thank our, our panelists uh, for their courage. And uh, um, I want to mention that uh, Nina and her colleagues at the Center for uh, Religious Freedom have uh, been doing this for a number of years and telling the stories that need to be told and uh, bringing to uh, greater attention the suffering that uh, we all need to uh, pay attention to and, and act to reverse. So I want to thank her for her work and dedication. And without further ado, I'll let her take take over the panel. Thank you, Nina. Thank you so much, John. Thank you all for coming, especially at such short notice. And it is a real privilege and honor for me to be introducing this panel today. Um, we have our old friend, Emmanuel Ogabe, who is a human rights lawyer and counsel for the Jubilee Campaign. Um, he has been on this podium uh, before, uh, just in November. He brought another survivor of a Boko Haram attack, um, Adamo Habila to Washington to tell about his ordeal. That man was shot in, his, in the head um, after refusing to deny his faith. Um, and he lived and survived and came here and brought the x-rays. And if you want to look on the, our video uh, stream, our, our um, website, the video of, of his testimony is there. And today, we're also extremely honored to have Deborah Peter, who I think is Hudson's, I am sure, is Hudson's youngest speaker ever. She is 15 years old. Uh, she is from northern Nigeria. Her family roots are in Chibok, the very town <coughs> where the 300-some uh, girls were abducted and enslaved. Um, she um, is the sole survivor of her household um, of a Boko Haram attack, which she will tell you about today. Uh, it's a terrible story, but it's an extremely important one for Americans to hear. And she is doing it, and it's a very painful story for her to tell. She's doing it because the, there are 300 girls her age who are suffering today in Nigeria. Please join me in giving them both a very, very warm, encouraging welcome. Deborah, can you start by telling us what happened on the night of December 22nd, 2011, and where you were? Um, <clears throat> just bring it close. Yeah. Okay. On December 22nd, 2011, at um, 7 p.m., so um, me and my brother were at home. Um, we started hearing a gun shooting. So my brother called my dad and told him not to come back home because um, they were fighting. And my father told him that just forget about it because um, this is not the first time he's coming home while people are fighting. So um, he came back home. So um, he told us that he's, he's hot. He wants to take a shower. So he went to the bathroom to take a shower. At um, 7.30, Three men knocked on our door, and then my brother opened the door for them. And they asked him, where is your dad? He now told them that my dad is in the bathroom taking a shower. So they waited on my dad about three minutes. So they go ahead and drag him out of the bathroom. They said he's wasting their time because they don't have any other like time to wait for him. So when they take him out of the bathroom, they told him that um, he should deny his faith. He now told them that he can't deny his faith. So they told him that they're going to kill him if he didn't deny his, his faith. But he told them that um, he should rather die than to go to um, hellfire. So um, he now told them that God said anyone that denied um, him, he's going to deny him to in the presence of his dad in heaven. So um, my dad refused to deny his faith, and then they shoot him th um, three times in his chest. So um, my brother was in shock, and he now said, what did my dad do to you? Why did you kill him? So um, they told him to to be quiet. If not, they're going to shoot him too. So there were three Boko Harams that um, came in um, that night. So um, they 
um, when my brother kept quiet, so the first, the there were three. One is the leader. One is the, like the person close to the leader, like second to the leader, and the other one is just a servant. So the servant now told them that they should kill my brother, but um, the one close to the leader told them no, they should not kill him because he's too young. And then the leader told them that the first guy has a point that um, if my brother stay, he would grow up and become a pastor like my dad. So the leader told them to kill him too. So they go ahead and shoot him twice in his chest. So he fall. When he fall, he started like moving. So um, so they go ahead um, and shoot him again, one in his mouth, and then he fall down and died. So I was I was in shock. I don't know what was happening. So um, so they put me in the middle of my dad and my brother. So the next day, um, the army came and picked up to the mortuary and take me to hospital. Deborah, um, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's not easy to talk about. Um, you uh, can you tell us why they singled out your family? Why did they? Why did these men and 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 who were these men? Did you know them? Um, and why did they come to your house? Why your house? Um, <clears throat> I know one of them. And uh, um, the other one is living close to our house, but I don't really know his name and stuff because um, I don't go close to the Muslim kids and the Muslim people. Um, and then the reason why they came to our house because my dad was a pastor, and they warned him, so we should. And my dad refused, so um, they go ahead and come to him and kill him, because um, on November they burned his church, but still. He didn't give up and build the church again. So they said, okay, they're going to kill him. So they came to the house and killed him. So they, um, your father was a Christian pastor, yeah. and he had a church, and they th that was burned down the month before. So the Boko Home is closing in on the area, and mm -hmm. this area is uh, in northeastern, in Borno State, where yeah. Chibok is. Yeah. Yeah. And <coughs> your family's connection to Chibok, your yeah, my dad and my mom are from Chibok. Mm -hmm. And um, you uh, you came to the United States um, with a uh, to come to a, a summer camp. Yeah. To that was um, Emmanuel. I know helped you and mm -hmm. um, brought bring you here. And um, it was it, w it was a a nine eleven foundation camp mm -hmm. for to help children of terrorism, yeah. as I understand. And you have not talked about your story before. Um, and this is the first time this week that you're starting to talk about it. Why is that? Why are you, why are you coming here and, and talking about it now? Um, because I want to help the other kids, and I want to help people from um, what is happening in Nigeria. So they told me that I should help them, so I'm willing to help them. And what are you hoping that will come of, of your talks? What do you hope will happen? I hope um, if people hear my story, I think they will understand um, and they will know more and more of what God said. And they will like understand what it means to stand strong in Thank you very, very much. And I'm just, um, you know, we're learning now in the papers that these girls were, uh, at least 100 of them or more, have been forcibly converted, that they were Christian. Um, is that your understanding, knowing Chibok, is that would, would there be Christians in Chibok? Yeah, Chibok is um, a like, small group of people, and there's a lot of Christians there. Most of them are Christian. And they're related to each other, so um, they don't normally fight like that. So it's the Boko Haram that is doing it. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware, but the U.S. government finally uh, designated Nigeria as Boko Haram as a terrorist organization in November, last November. And before that, um, the, the State Department had been saying that the um, 
Boko Haram had nothing to do with religion. This was uh, Assistant Secretary for Africa, Johnny Carson, was saying after, I, I remember I was dumbfounded, it was after a, an attack on another church um, in 2012, and he gave a speech before CSIS uh, think tank in town here saying that it had nothing to do with religion. So uh, thank you so much. Emmanuel, you want to take over? Emmanuel just returned from uh, Nigeria on Friday. He'd been there in uh, the Northeast and in Cameroon for three weeks, uh, collecting stories from Boko Haram victims. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Nina, for uh, having me. And thank you very much, everyone, for turning up um, to this lunchtime event where we're not serving lunch. Um, <coughs> uh, now, we, we, we've seen the headlines, um, and we thought it would be a good idea to drill down a little uh, and put a face to the reality of the atrocities that are going on in Nigeria. And this is important because we've faced a major wall of denial, not from the Soviets or the traditional uh, establishment, but from the State Department. Um, the Deborah's story is one that we've known uh, for a couple of years since we found her during a fact-finding mission. And I should point out that she was denied a visa twice by the uh, U.S. government. And the reason she was denied a visa was they said to her, um, you can't make this stuff, off, this stuff up, they said to her, uh, you don't have family ties. And so they essentially re-traumatized a girl whose family was exterminated by, by terrorists uh, just because she wanted to come to America for a terror uh, survivor's uh, camp. Now, the good thing about Deborah's story is that it's a story of what is good about America. Um, a foundation of 9-11 victims, uh, the children of people who died in 9-11, decided to have a camp for other child victims around the world. And it was that program that we got Deborah enrolled in and we brought her uh, to the States. And when she was heading back to Nigeria, some really decent folks said, you know what? Let's find her a school here so she can go to school. And that's how uh, Deborah ended up uh, in this part of the country. Now, we tactically decided not to put her in the public space because uh, she was very fragile. Uh, she still has nightmares and all of that. And so even though we were facing an administration that was denying the religious genocide going on against Christians in Nigeria, we felt that we couldn't sacrifice the mental health of this young child just to get one up over the uh, administration. Uh, that changed um, uh, a couple of weeks ago when the terrorists went to Deborah's village and abducted uh, about 300 girls, literally uh, you know, people she's played with. Um, her mom graduated from that school um, and, you know, in a normal world, maybe she would have gone to that school. Um, and so we reached out to Deborah and we said, look, you know, do you want to speak up um, and bring some, put a face uh, to this travesty? And she was kind enough to say, yes, I, I will do that. And so uh, this brings us to um, this point where we are now. Let me uh, maybe give you a bit of context of what Boko Haram has been doing. Um, Boko Haram are gentlemen terrorists. And I say that obviously tongue in cheek. The point is Boko Haram says we don't kill the elderly, we don't kill the young, and we don't kill women. Those are the three exceptions they have. Uh, the Christians, the Jews, and Muslim apostates, um, they don't count. We'll kill them. And so her story from a couple of years ago is, is classic. They came in, they killed the pastor, and then they made a calculation that his son, who was an exception to the targets, should be killed because he might grow up and become a pastor. This was an example of Boko Haram uh, shifting the goalposts of those that it would not kill. Now, 
um, what has happened from all of the fact-finding missions we've conducted was the Christian response to this genocide was they would move the men out and leave the women behind. And so we found that there were many camps of uh, Christian men who left town and left the women behind because Boko Haram said, we will not, we don't kill women, we don't attack women. That changed last month. Boko Haram realized, you know, we've killed all the men or we're running out of town, we're going out of the terrorism business, we've got to come up with a new uh, game plan. And the next thing we have, 300 young women, almost 300 young women abducted, uh, taken to uh, this camp, and uh, they have become uh, slave brides. And so we, we, we illustrate this to say that Deborah dodged a bullet two years ago when Boko Haram was still operating on that rules of engagement. And, but now the story has changed. If she were in Nigeria, if she was in Chibok on that day, they wouldn't have done the gentlemanly thing of tying her up between the corpses of her brother and her dad and leaving her overnight. And this is how this resident evil uh, is evolving. And so um, I want to maybe quickly just share a few of the uh, trends that we noticed um, from this recent trip to uh, Nigeria. The first one I've just shared, shared is obviously the gender-based targeting uh, of women uh, now that they have essentially decimated the male population of many parts of northeastern uh, uh, Nigeria. Um, the other trend that I would, uh, of course, want to mention is uh, the fact that Boko Haram is um, becoming um, tactically more superior uh, than the security forces uh, on ground. Uh, we've, we've noticed uh, the armaments they bring in are way more sophisticated than what the Nigerian government has. But in response to the global outcry over the abduction of the girls, we've seen media reports saying, oh, America is sending assistance, the French are sending assistance, the Brits are coming in, and so on and so forth. And what happened last week while we were out there was that Boko Haram blew up bridges. Now, this is a group that is taking preemptive strike action way before U.S. drones, way before French um, forces or anyone comes in. And that shows you how resilient uh, and how deadly uh, they are. Um, I do want to mention uh, another concern that we noted. I don't know whether to call it a trend, but the humanitarian impact of the crisis is such that um, we're seeing uh, population displacements from Nigeria into Niger, into Chad, into Cameroon. Now, for a long time, we were seeing IDP displacements within the country. But we're now seeing entire villages. I, I was at a refugee camp last week in Cameroon, and a pastor explained to me how the entire village just woke up at night and everyone just marched en masse across the border because Boko Haram had retreated from the capital where the military was engaging them to the rural areas, and they were killing people in their homes and looting their property. And so this mass population displacement has been going on for almost a year. But what is particularly disturbing is that last week while we were in, the, in Cameroon, Boko Haram struck a village, um, killed uh, close to 300 people, and then there was a population displacement and 3,000 people fled again across the borders. So we have this going on consistently for a year. And you begin to wonder, where is the uh, humanitarian response to this crisis? Let me mention two things that uh, concerned me. Uh, one of them was at the UN refugee camp we visited, we noticed that they were distributing grains uh, to the people who had fled there from Nigeria. And then when we interviewed them, they said to us, this is the first time that we've been giving food in 49 days. Now, this is the people at the official UN camp. They've not been fed for 49 days. Uh, there are other unofficial camps. You can only imagine how bad the conditions are there. And so we have a situation where there's an ineffective military response to terrorism. Then we ha there's a, an ineffective humanitarian 
response to the victims of the terrorism. And, and uh, we, we, we're at a point now where the international community needs to respond uh, effectively uh, to what is going on in Nigeria. Maybe I should also add um, at this point that one of the um, trends of Boko Haram attacks that we're seeing, uh, the one I referred to earlier about the gender uh, victimization um, of women, um, we have actually, uh, Jubilee Campaign, the group that I'm affiliated with, has actually encountered a couple of um, escaped child uh, slave brides. And the stories that they narrate are chilling and, and, and harrowing. Um, on one of our trips uh, in September, um, we literally um, were told the terrorists are striking right now. They're burning three churches. You've got to turn back. You've got to turn back. And so we asked, what happened? Why, why are they striking just right now? Oh, there was a girl the terrorists captured. She escaped from the camp, and they're looking for her. And so we suddenly became uh, uh, unexpected, mild-mannered superheroes because we realized that the only thing for us to do was to get her out of there. And so we got her out of here, there. And some of you may have seen her on CBS News <coughs> yesterday. Uh, I think she's the only escaped uh, child bride to give uh, uh, an interview. But we were able to move her out of that location. And initially, we thought this is um, may maybe this is a one-off thing. Uh, but we now realize that this is part of the systematic agenda of Boko Haram uh, to uh, attack women because uh, most of the men are gone. Uh, I will say in a nutshell about some of the atrocities that these girls have uh, shared with us is that Boko Haram takes you back to the camp. And I'll speak specifically to um, Hajara's case because that was on CBS News uh, yesterday. So uh, I don't think I'm doing very much harm if I go into more details about what happened to her. But in the camp that she was taken to in the mountains of uh, Nigeria and Cameroon, uh, every day for a week, she was asked to renounce her faith or, or die. And she refused. On the seventh day, one of the terrorists who was related to her came up to her and said to her, you know, Hajara, you know, today is the final day they're going to slit your throat. I'm going to ask you to do yourself a favor. Just accept Islam and, and spare your life, even if you don't believe it. And so when they came uh, on that seventh day, Hajara um, accepted uh, Islam. And so they put her in the burqa, just like the girls in the TV. And she was assigned to be the wife of uh, one of the terrorists, the elite terrorists. However, and this is an interesting phenomenon. They said, listen, she's an infidel. Um, so she needs to go through a purification process bec before she can become good enough to be the bride of the head terrorist. And so they forbore from... Um, you know, sexually uh, molesting her. And so they designated her on a 90-day purification plan. And so um, the good thing is she played along with them. She studied the Quran. She was trained in arms and so on and so forth. But she realized that her window of opportunity was slipping. So close to the 90-day, uh, the end of the 90-day grace period, she feigned illness. And so they got worried, you know, what are we going to do? This is a problem. All right, let's send her somewhere to go get her treatment. Now, they would not have cared about her life if she had remained a Christian. Uh, but now, because she had played along for 90 days, she had carried ammunition for them when they went on attacks and so on and so forth, she was now one of the boys. And so they let her go out uh, for treatment with uh, a Muslim, an older Muslim woman as her chaperone. And when they got to the town, that was when um, Hajara um, escaped. And we were able to get her and whisk her out of there. So um, there's a little more of Hajara's story uh, that is very disturbing. Some of it is online. 
we were very disappointed that um, a journalist from Reuters went to Nigeria, met her, took her photograph, and splashed it on the internet and gave her name. Oh, girl escapes from camp. It, it was so uh, revolting. And so what we did was we had to relocate her again uh, within the country. And this is why, these are some of the sensitivities why we don't always bring uh, victims out because some people don't have the intelligent discretion to realize that you can put this young lady um, at risk. And so um, this was a snapshot of one of the, this was actually the earliest um, slave bride um, that we encountered. And since then, uh, in the last eight months, we've encountered about five. And it's, this is the first time that we are seeing huge numbers. We're talking hundreds uh, have been abducted. Uh, let me. Can I ask yeah. you a question, Emmanuel? Um, this seems to be the the uh, Chibok uh, incident seems to be an escalation for Boko Haram. I mean, there have been these abductions in the past that you're describing, um, but to take 300 girls all at once, what is going on? Why are they are they why are they escalating? How are they escalating? And 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 finally, what are you recommending uh, that? the West or Nigeria do about it? What can be done about it? Yeah, well, I mean, clearly they're escalating. And um, because they're a resilient group, what has happened is traditionally they've attacked churches consistently on Sundays. And so when the military deploys to protect churches, they switch it around and they go and attack schools. Now, what we noticed was in the last couple of years, they would attack empty schools. So... Um, no one felt uh, the need to protect, protect schools that were inhabited. And then now they are taking, attacking inhabited schools and killing kids while they're there. So the, 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 the terror group is way more resilient than the State Department is in their analysis of the problem or the Nigerian uh, military is in their response uh, to the problem. And I, I, I wrote an article while I was out in Nigeria about the abduction of the girls. And I think I asked that it should be circulated to you all. I don't know if it, it was done. But I, my point there was uh, the terrorists are energized by the media attention they're getting. That is not to say we shouldn't report it. But I said that they've done so many horrible things and no one noticed them. And finally, they picked up the girls and everyone is watching them. And I said they're going to strike again and they're going to go for more girls. Barely 48 hours after I wrote that article, they struck again and they took uh, eight more girls. So th this is, unfortunately, this is a make or break time for Boko Haram. If the world cannot unite and snuff them out now, they now know what will get our attention. And they're going to keep, you know, putting it in our faces uh, going forward. As far as recommendations go, I think the first step is for the State Department in the U.S., to stop waffling over the, the core theological um, basis of this group. This is not an economic rebel movement. I, I read a newspaper article that said they're rebels. These are not rebels. They're anarchists. They're jihadists. And when you frame it in the right context, when you have a right problem statement, then you can have an appropriate response to that. Uh, the cure for... Uh, you can't call it um, flu if it's Ebola. They don't have the same responses. We do not have a cure for Ebola, and we do not have a cure for extreme uh, fanatical uh, Islamism. And so containment, containment, not appeasement, appeasement, is the solution. Uh, I, I want to make one key point so we understand how crazy these guys are. In the first place... They want an Islamist theocracy over northern Nigeria. You cannot achieve that in a country where the population is 50% Christian. We are talking about, you know, massive genocide to be able to achieve that. Um, now, here's the thing. In northern Nigeria, where they're insisting and demanding for Sharia law, guess what? There is Sharia law. Uh, while we were in Nigeria, a guy was sentenced to death by stoning uh, for uh, rape. So there is Sharia law, but they want a very extreme version, the Taliban style. This is why they were originally called the Nigerian Taliban. 
They want to be able to have public beheadings in a stadium where people can gather. And, you know, that's, that's, this is a medieval sect. This is the sort of thing they want. So they don't like the current Sharia process where you go into a court and you have trials and all of that. That's too slow and boring. They want to do it the old-fashioned way. These are the kind of savages that we're dealing with. And I, 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 I will maybe wrap up on this point by saying, you know, this is a threat of existential proportions to the inchoate democratic and governance structures in Africa. Now, when 9-11 occurred here in the United States, we, it was an inconvenience to some of our constitutional rights like privacy and, you know, TSA was, an, was a nuisance. But in Africa, it's a whole different ballgame because it's a threat to the legal system, to the rule of law, and to democracy. And so um, Dr. King says it well that um, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And this is why this should be of grave uh, concern to all of us. Great. Thank you very much. I think we have time for a few questions if anyone would like to ask a question. Please identify yourself, too. Uh, and, and just wait one second for the microphone. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Hi. I'm Scott Thuman from ABC7 News. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. And, and I'm just kind of curious, Deborah, as we talk about Boko Haram and how much it affects the community, the neighborhoods, the villages, was this something that you always feared? Is, it, it, is there a day that you go through life without worrying about Boko Haram? For us who don't necessarily understand, what is it like to be in an area where they're so dominant? <clears throat> um, yeah, because um, we move from one place to another because um, they always disturb my father, and they always told him that they're going to come attack him one day. So my dad always moved, but they keep following him and stuff. So, yeah. And then you said, uh, um, you were telling me earlier, Deborah, that um, you got some help to move out of that region into the capital from another pastor. And what happened to that pastor? Um, he was killed, too, by Boko Haram. Um, on uh, March, sorry, it was May 15th uh, last year. The pastor who um, paid for her to get out of town, and this very pastor who actually introduced me to her, uh, Boko Haram came to his home uh, May last year and killed him in front of his kids. Um, yeah. So, you know, just hearing these stories, you get the sense that Boko Haram is encircling these, these areas and going and targeting them um, pretty sporadically, but over uh, consistently in a way. And so it's not systematic, but over time, a lot of people are being affected. Well, I mean, they have had differences um, of strategy in Yobe, state, they were very systematic. Um, they would go out and mark the homes of Christians with graffiti, come back at night and kill off the Christian males. And that was how um, Adamu, the, his Adam, entire yeah. way, uh, neighborhood, every, all the males all were the killed males. in one night. He was the only survivor. And m most of the wounds we see on male Christians from northern Nigeria are serious trauma to the head because they shoot to kill and most times it has, uh, it's at point-blank uh, range. Now, we've worked with several survivors. Um, as we speak, there are only three uh, survivors of Boko Haram who are in the U.S. Uh, that we know of, that we work with all of them. Um, who came to the U.S., I mean, but Habila has gone back. So Deborah and one other guy in Texas. The guy in Texas also has trauma to the head. He was shot in the head. Uh, Boko Haram killed his landlord. The next day they went for the funeral. They came to the funeral and shot everybody. And he's the sole survivor. And he was medevac to the UK. The doctors worked on him for a couple of years. Finally, they said, there's nothing we can do for you. Let's send you to America. And so he, he came to the US a few months ago. But he and uh, Habila, they all have gunshots to the head. That's their, their, their MO. Uh, when they do mm. this. So it was very systematic mm. in Yobi, and that's why the Yobi people fled inland to Plateau and the Middle Belt. Now, in, um, in Borno State, 
they have gone and they're attacking the rural communities very systematically too. And that's why they're fleeing into Cameroon. They're much poorer than the people of Yobe. Yobe could drive further inland within Nigeria and become IDPs. But the rural people in Borno literally ran out, they were run out of town, entire villages on foot across the border. So there is a level of um, systematic annihilation, but there are also sporadic um, you know, assassinations like this uh, pastor who was an official of the Christian Association of Nigeria. Mm -hmm. I'm Brian Murphy, retired from the Department of State. Mr. Ogabe, what would you have? <coughs> very sorry. What would you have the international community do that it has not been done so far, please? Particularly the United States. Well, um, the first recommendation was a, a change in the lens, the paradigm that they're using to look at this. This must be properly framed in the uh, in the lens of global jihad and then we can formulate appropriate responses. Um, I think, for example, that we have had, I mean, the U.S. has had extensive experience dealing with insurgencies of this nature in Afghanistan and in uh, Iraq. Let me point out that a U.S. terrorism report says that Boko Haram is the second deadliest terrorist group in the world next to, guess who, the Taliban. So who has the best experience dealing with the Taliban? Guess who, the U.S., so, I mean, we can make this thing work. Uh, uh, and so there needs to be some of that tactical uh, intelligence cooperation that we are not sure and we have not seen much of. Um, again, the humanitarian response. I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. When you have a country that is equally split, 50% Christian, 50% Muslim, if the Christians get really pushed to the wall... Um, something will give. And that, for me, is the doomsday scenario that I dread. Uh, there has been an amazing reserve of grace and graciousness in taking it and taking it and taking it. But that reservoir is not inexhaustible. And when that dam busts, uh, you know, we're talking a country of 150 million people, uh, it will make um, uh, Bosnia look like child's play. Now, one of the things we noticed while we're out there is that people who did not flee are being re-victimized again. Uh, I met a widow named Naomi, and Boko Haram came to her home. And again, this group is very resilient. They killed her husband in front of her. Then they burnt her home right in front of her. So they, she had nowhere to go to. And she said to them, please kill me. She had an eight-month-old baby in her hand. She said, please kill me. You've, killed, you've, you've destroyed my home. You killed my husband. And they said, oh, no, we don't, we don't kill women. And so she eventually went to live with uh, her uncle. And then some months later, they came to her uncle's house and killed him again. Now, it, it, how she is not in a vegetative state, I don't know. But at some point, people like this will say, I, I can't take it anymore. And then that's where we're going to have a bigger problem. So I think that humanitarian assistance to the victims will help douse tensions. Uh, and that's one of the things we need to be looking at um, aggressively. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This, this lady and then over here. So what is the status? Oh, sorry, Penny Starr with CNS News. Um, are you to spoke about her difficulty getting a visa. What is in place now for people like Deborah and others who want to come to the United States. We talk about helping them there or, you know, I know, for example, in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, people were brought to the United States. What, what's in place to help people? Well, I wish I could say that there was something in place, but even after Deborah's, Deborah was denied a visa multiple times, Habila, uh, the, again, sole survivor of a neighborhood massacre, was denied twice by the embassy. So we who are human rights advocates on behalf of these people, we end up spending so much time fighting the administration on issues like visas and all of that that we actually cannot devote enough resources um, to the actual work of assisting these people. Uh, so after three tries, we got involved uh, with the congressman. Both 
um, Deborah and Habila. It took congressional interventions uh, to be able to get them uh, to come out uh, to the states. Uh, well, yeah. One of the problems is that the uh, State Department has been reluctant to even talk about this in terms of religious persecution. And the, um, in, in fact, I'm thinking back at the Assistant Secretary f uh, for uh, Africa and his speech in 2012 where he said that um, this was a, a problem of poor delivery of government services. That's what was motivating Boko Haram. And there was poverty. And then the response of the U.S. was all economic at that time. And um, this was two years ago. And, and you know, trying to uh, develop the North. And, um, uh, you know, that has been, I think, counterproductive in a way. Um, and we've lost a decade. So, I mean, unless the analysis starts changing, the visas is going to be a continuing problem because they don't recognize it as uh, a human rights crisis that it is. Maybe uh, this incident with the uh, Chibok girls will, will change that. Um, and Denmark. Uh, Deborah, I'd like to hear a little more about your story. Uh, tell us about your family. What happened? Where was your mother? What happened to her? Uh, do you have other sisters, brothers? Uh, and also, you said that you didn't uh, play with the Muslim uh, 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 children. Is it very segregated at your town? I mean, is it? Are you divided up in two different uh, communities? Um, <coughs> no. Um, now it's just that um, because um, my dad, we're together with my dad and with my brother, you know, my dad always teach me that um, I should like stay, like he always told me not to follow like bad friends and stuff. And anytime I'm with the Muslim kid, they always told me about that God is like, my God is fake and stuff. So I try to like avoid them and stuff. So I don't talk to them anymore. And then, um, when this happened, my mom traveled to Lagos, and then um, my brother is the only person I have, and so I don't have any sister or brother. Did you have a question back there? Uh, Michael, Michael Grybowski with the Christian Post. Uh, my question for the group is, um, Basically, there have been, you know, for years there have been atrocities in northern Nigeria, and I was curious. So, uh, why do you believe that this particular incident, this mass abduction of schoolgirls, has garnered so much attention can compared to other past incidents? Well, you know, maybe I should kind of follow up from where she left off. Uh, it's not so much the question of segregation between Christian communities and Muslim communities. Her case is really interesting because her mom was Muslim and had, her dad was Christian. Uh, it's one of those strange love stories uh, that doesn't end very well. Um, and so they got married, and, and then it became a problem. They were being persecuted. Uh, and so the mom had to actually move south just to avoid persecution. Um, I, I should add here that after they killed her brother and her dad, they sat down and made an, a mental evaluation and said, oh, you know what? We got it wrong. She is the spawn of an apostate, so we should have killed her. So again, they revised their rules of, uh, of engagement to make an exception that uh, Deborah and her mom should be killed, and, and, and that's part of the reason why she's unsafe. But he, let me frame it this way. Persecution in northern Nigeria is, has been the new normal for decades um, every year, every couple of years, you know, a Christian girl will be abducted and converted to Islam and married off, and her parents not, can do nothing about it. This is not terrorism. This happens every year. Um, as a child, a friend of mine who was actually American, um, you know, with Baptist high school and everything, they, they took her away and they married her off to someone, and they published newspaper headlines celebrating the fact that the top northern Christian, his daughter, had become a Muslim. I, I grew up with that as a child, and she's an American citizen. Now, what is happening now is this is persecution on steroids. Now, northern Nigerian Christians are used to being killed a couple of times a year. There's a lunar eclipse. I'm, I'm not making this up. You can Google this. There will be a riot. 
churches will be burnt. It's the sins of the infidels that covered up the moon. This is normal in northern Nigeria. But for the terrorists to come out and abduct 300 kids, uh, this is where northern Nigerian Christians are saying, okay, we didn't sign up for this. We've been second-class citizens since we were born. But you can't kill us all the time. And this is why this is gaining a bit of uh, international attention. The second reason is this. Frankly, the timing of this event. Remember that we as a world are going through the trauma of the loss of Malaysian Flight 370. Uh, we did all we could. We couldn't save those souls. Then we had the horrific incident with the, the ferry in, in, in Korea. This is the third traumatic um, experience that our collective humanity is facing. But unlike the other two, this is redeemable. There can still be hope. These girls can still be saved. And I think that we all are trying to say, look, what can we do uh, you know, to redeem this situation and save these girls' lives? So I don't want to psychoanalyze the globe, but I think that there's some element of hope within all of us that says maybe something good can come out of this. Well, I, I also, you know, want to add that, you know, we abolished slavery about 150 years ago, and um, and the uh, and that has become the norm um, worldwide. And this was a really bold move of uh, Boko Haram to say, no, we're going back to the bad old days. And these are our slaves, and we're going to sell them for $12 a piece. It just shocked the conscience of the world. I know moderate Muslims have stood up and, um, um, in Nigeria, in, in southern Nigeria, and protested this. I know the Nigerian Muslim community here in Washington has protested it. And it's sort of caught on around the world. So um, it really is an escalation and something that is just so shocking yeah. that um, – we, we can't turn away. Faith. Hi, Faith McDonald from the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Um, Emmanuel, you were talking about the fact that the northern Nigerian Christians have been treated as second-class citizens. And this kind of uh, makes even clearer the cognitive dissonance that the State Department lives under, where they um, have said that it's the Muslims in northern Nigeria who are marginalized and impoverished, and that's why the poor things do what they do. Um, isn't it true that the State Department also has pressured the Nigerian government to actually share power with people who ha were not elected? Yes. Um, the, the U.S. has put a lot of pressure on the Nigerian government, and some of that pressure uh, has been mis leading and has misdirected the government of Nigeria. Now, at a time when the Nigerian government should have had a robust, robust military response to the insurgency, the State Department was going, oh, this is economic, you need to appoint more Muslims into your cabinet, you need to throw more money at the problem, and so on and so forth. And um, it wasn't until the terrorists had captured significant swaths of territory and some northern governors said, you got to help us out here. We're going under. The Nigerian government realized that the U.S. had been misleading it and finally sent in the troops uh, in May last year. Um, and so, uh, yes, we have seen some of that uh, misguidance uh, uh, from the U.S. And um, we do need to, again, urge the U.S. to properly reevaluate, you know, this situation. Let me, let me tackle the poverty argument one more time. And here's the thing. Islam has f some basic inbuilt safety nets for the poor uh, with the system of zakat and almsgiving. And Muslims are some of the most contented human beings that I have ever met. Um, their worldview of fatalism allows them to believe, you know, uh, if I'm not rich, you know, it's God's will. And and so they're not malcontents, as the State Department is trying to uh, portray. Now, I interviewed uh, an American survivor of the UN bombing um, in Nigeria. And she said to me, she said exactly the same uh, words to me, that this is, this is not economic because uh, Muslims are not um, 
the average material, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Western model. They don't operate that uh, average uh, material Western mod model. Uh, so yes, there does need to be a change in perspective uh, in that light. There was uh, there was a jobs a job an unemployment issue among young men though in in northern Nigeria. I think there it may have been exacerbated by the Boko Haram uh, terrorism and and ideology of being against education. There is massive unemployment in northern Nigeria, and I will emphasize that we did have the Niger Delta militancy in the south. That was clearly economic in nature, clearly. Um, what we have in the north is not the same. Secondly, I should point out that a lot of the unemployment in Niger northern Nigeria is self-inflicted in the sense that there is a warped, um, ide uh, theological practice that some say is not is, is not genuinely Islamic, where you know someone will have forty kids, four wives and forty kids, and then essentially dump them all on the streets in the hands of uncertified mullahs. Um, it's called the Almajiri system, and so the northern Nigeria is intentionally growing street kids. We, we literally have farms producing unemployed and unemployable street kids. Uh, so where it happens, you know, for example, in the southeast uh, D.C. here, you know, for whatever reasons, um, in, in northern Nigeria, it's intentional. And there is a bill in the Nigerian Congress, they're trying to say, listen, send your kids to school. And, you know, Muslims are up in arms against it. No, you can't force us. This is part of our religious practice. So it's actually... Um, hampering the ability of Niger's democracy to deal decisively with some of these uh, problems. So the Almajiri system is, is not because um, there are no schools for them, but because they believe that they should leave their kids on the streets to learn Quranic uh, uh, instruction from these uh, many times um, radical mullahs. And these kids have been used, they're the ones who are responsible for a lot of uh, violence uh, against Christians uh, that is not even related to the terrorism. Well, I, I think that our time is up, um, and I want to thank you all for coming, and please, um, please express our thanks. Thank you.